0: hello and welcome to bondcast a podcast series where we discuss our views on the latest themes and events shaping race markets. i'm imogen Bakra, head of non-dollar rate strategy and i'm joined today by global market specialist dan labrusi and joanne spadega okay well since i'm here in the room with jan today in the us let's start there um, we're recording this as the market is moving in some well relatively violent ways i would say uh, we've had a, a continued bear steepening in treasuries um what's your take on all of this? And what's your view on duration and, and curve going
1: forward? So uh, like you said, the long end has been selling off by the long end here. I'm talking mostly about 10-year, 30-year uh, treasuries. And it has been more or less like a global phenomenon, but mostly in the U.S. And I think there's a couple of drivers there. And I'm going to abstract from the front end, which is really driven by monetary policy. But the, on the longer end, there have been a couple of, um, I think these kind of like big thematic shifts that people are paying a lot more attention now that the fed is more or less on pause or at least towards the end of its cycle for one we've been having a lot more conversations about price deficits and a lot of issuance uh that might uh kind of like lead to supply indigestion and eventually steepening or like of you know duration uh needing to price at higher yields in order to find suitable buyers I'm not so sure if that's the case yet or if we simply ran out of topics to talk about. It's also hard to it's hard to just exactly pinpoint what is the right level of supply. In 10-year equivalents during COVID, we issued a lot more if we didn't see anything similar. Uh, similarly, uh, swap spreads or anything that you, you would prepare treasuries to, they haven't really uh, implied that treasuries are significantly oversupplied yet, but uh, yeah, it's certainly a topic that keeps coming up. And if we do continue in this path, but next year, we probably won't see a decent amount of uh, increase in uh, in option sizes. Which I'll admit, it, it you know, more supply should weigh on on yields, uh, maybe less on the U.S. and rest of the world, but it still should. Um, but again, as a percentage of GDP and nominal GDP has been growing pretty quickly, it is uh, it, it, you know they go hand to hand. You're issuing more debt, but at the same time, your the assets of your buyers also go up. If you're insurance or pension company with nominal gdp growing the pace it is well the premiums you get in will go up to your assets will go up to your liabilities will go up to so you have a a a larger base to invest or like larger needs for invest although they might not grow simultaneously i think eventually the demand side also catches up so hard question but in the near term i think that adds upward pressure to yields other thing is other issues such as a negative carry of being long these positions at some point when you're looking like a in just pure cost of holding basis these treasuries are expensive from the longer end. It's not a m- massive amount for longer-dated stuff just because of the, the duration that you get per dollar. But still, it, it, it does start weighing. And if you know the Fed's kind of telling you, I'm going to be on change for the next three, six, nine months, well, maybe you just assume that now is not the time to be long. These uh, psychologically, maybe something else changed. And uh, you just have, in a period of dormancy, it's not that crazy to see... These longer-dated rates just catching up to the overnight rate and the curve bear steepening. That was one of our themes since August, that we have a lot stronger conviction in the curve steepening than outright duration. And we could see a scenario where data disappoints and the curve. Both steepens led by three-year and five-year, but we could also see a scenario like we're having now where the long end drives the moves higher and yields start uh, pushing higher because of all of these factors. So a uh, much stronger view than steepeners and a lot, I guess, lower conviction on outright duration.
0: What about the front end? And you mentioned it kind of briefly, and obviously, and like you say, it's kind of bearish steepening now, so it's being driven by the long end. But, but how do you feel about the front end?
1: I think the front end, the risks for the front end are now, and when I talk about front end, I'm going to kind of stick to the two years, two and a half years and then, I think the risks there are more tilted to to the downside in yields, actually, because the Fed, so we looked at historically how the, the curve has behaved or the kind of pricing the front end has behaved uh, in relationship to what the Fed projects they're going to do, uh, and when we look at what the Fed tells us in their dots, so the, the, the quarterly projections, if the Fed tells us they going, they plan on hiking 100 basis points or cutting 100 basis points, it's unlikely that the market prices an even more tightening than what they have. It makes sense. You know, what, you know, It's much easier to ease than than tighten, and markets uh, play alongside. So the forecast of 50 basis points of cuts for next year should, in my view. Uh, act as a soft ceiling for where the rates would go unless we get like a sudden resurgence in inflation so which makes these forecasts outdated so because of that i think there's not much room for two-year yields to go up higher from here of course you're paying a negative carry like four or five base points a month which is not nothing but implied moves and daily implied moves in options markets are about six six and a half so so it's not it's not that massive amount if you have like a view that things might slow down if I had to bet on a direction for the economy, I probably would take decelerating growth over reaccelerating growth. So uh, I think now the downside in yield is is much wider. Like the probability for that happening is still there, while the upside is kind of capped. So if I had to, I don't know if today is the moment, but direction, I think the risks are more tilted to being, uh, you know, to the yields ending up much lower than high here in the short end. so a bit of a
0: twist. A bit of a twist exactly. Nice, I like. All right, then let's switch over to the euro area, Joanne. We've got lots of um, European inflation data coming out this week. How is that looking so far and and how much does it matter, I suppose, for the ECB in the weeks and in the months ahead?
2: Yeah, so the German print that came in this morning was actually slightly lower than expected. I do do think that does put um, some downside risks on the headline euro area print that we're likely to get. Uh, so, initial expectations for that were 4.5 percent year on year, and that's looking something more like 4.2 percent. I do think the headline inflation numbers do uh, come as a positive for the ECB, uh, and it really does reinforce the story that the ECB is done hiking, particularly given the message we got at the last meeting and the inflation prints kind of confirm that story. So, we do think next next month's meeting will not be live, and we're unlikely to see to see a move, uh, even though I suppose there could be some pressure in the December meeting. So I think the general kind of trend is kind of positive for the ECB and for our views in general. Uh, I suppose the market will kind of keep focusing on these inflation prints, but also the growth numbers as they come out and implications for that on the policy cycle as well. Um, What about the funding
0: side of things? We're obviously getting
2: into kind
0: of deficit season in the euro area. We've had some funding updates as well. We've had um, France and Italy. How did those numbers kind of tie in with your and and what are the implications
2: for markets there? So the funding numbers have been interesting. France has noted that their deficit for 2024 will be around 4.4%, so barely in line with what they've said at the start of the year. And Italy's uh, deficit is going to to be higher than they sort of said at the start of this year, where they telegraphed a level of 3.7%, and that's talking kind of above 4% for 2024. Um, I think the it's fairly interesting for a couple of reasons. One, the Italian story was fairly well televised. We've got headlines around Italian deficits for uh, a lot of the last month kind of flagging that it would be higher than they forecasted for 2024. Uh, but I do think there's a bit of kind of optimism around these numbers in the sense that the growth picture will be fairly important in determining how the deficits actually come out at the end. And we could actually see upside risk to these deficits going forward if the growth picture does actually deteriorate um, and doesn't come in, in line with the estimates that they did use. Uh, but I think overall the message for supply really is that we should kind of see another year where supply is elevated. Um, I, I think for France uh, specifically their bond supply for this uh, for next year will be higher than this year, uh, driven by I suppose the fact that they will be running down a cash account less than they had last year. So the amount of bonds coming in will be higher even though the, the, the actual deficit is lower. Um, I think kind of this picture of, excess, of quite a lot of supply, along with the year next year, where we have lots of um, QE in the sense that APP QT will be running out, running in full versus kind of a staggered approach this year, plus a potential start of PEP as well, PEP QT uh, does actually put up net supply pressures for next year. And it's been fairly interesting, I think, just kind of post ECB. Uh, John's already talked about the vast deepening pressures we've been seeing in the market and I do think there's this kind of focus away sort of from the front end and potentially to the longer end of the curve where supply I think is quite an important factor for the steepening that we're seeing uh, kind of post ECB uh, with lots of supply kind of weighing at the back end and again the twist steepening does seem fairly uh, a fairly I suppose sensible proposition in the euro area as well given that the front end is more pinned down by what the ECB um, has kind of signaled about uh, rates and more uh, exposed to I would say to the the potential repricing based on the growth factor
0: yeah and i guess particularly when you compare you know current consensus to what we're expecting from ecb you know with a cut as, as soon as march and you know if if that materializes the market needs to reprice a little bit the front okay so thinking about that i mean you mentioned the uh possibility of quantitative tightening qt being accelerated perhaps um the middle of the year this is obviously something that since the last hike from the ECB has really been front and center of, of the tightening debate. It's all about, you know, what other tools can they use? And particularly with regard to the size of the balance sheet, I think they're thinking about the ways in which they can tighten using that. Um, and of course, the discussion hasn't just been about QT on whether that be on the APP or on the um, PEPP path, uh, but also on their uh, MRR, the minimum reserve requirement ratio. Um there's been lots of sort of ECB sources articles around, some suggesting that they would raise that to just a, a couple of percent higher, but some, you know, housing almost double digits increase in the minimum reserves.
2: Um, what's your take on that? How likely do you, do you think something like that is? So the Hawks of the Committee do, some of the Hawks of the Committee do like this idea of minimum reserves being quite high, as we got some comments saying that it could be as high at 10%. And these only not really be seem to be driven by monetary policy uh, and monetary policy concerns, as uh, so it does seem to be really about reducing, I suppose, the cost of the ECB of excess reserves. We don't really think a move to something like 10% is likely. Uh, something around 2% to 3%, which is more in line with what they had in the past, is more likely, we think, and more likely not lead to too much market impact in terms of um, either cash rates or swap spreads. Uh, a, a larger increase will probably have a, a few different kind of effects on the system not m- most importantly i suppose or most largely the impact will be on bank profitability and then there are second round re- impacts that are likely but it's a bit harder to kind of pinpoint what those will be given that uh, the way in which excess reserves are for different banks does differ quite a lot as you can see some banks being impacted more sharply by an increase in minimum reserve requirements and some i suppose less so as uh, so the second round of effects are definitely a lot more mixed and asymmetrical for banks but any kind of increases small increase I was to say to two to three percent shouldn't have too much of an impact on uh, the kind of market as a whole okay great
1: so uh, as well watchers and will notice but Imogen is in the room today with me and, uh, she's energetic as ever but uh, you know we're catching her at the end of, uh, of quite the road trip in the U.S. we've seen a lot of clients and I think that's kind of burning questions that listener want to know why is she in this room and what is she what did she learn this week? What's from the feedback to your views? I'm
2: in the room because I came all the way here to see you.
1: Well, let's <laughs> go um, with that.
0: Yeah, Ross and I, uh, Ross Walker, I chief economist, um, have been doing a busy road trip this week in the US. We've been seeing clients um, in New York and in Boston, so a mix kind of real money and hedge fund accounts. Um, and so yeah, I've been a bit out of touch with everything that's going on. It feels like a big move in Marcus. So I'm not going to comment on. Too much of that. I guess I'll just give a quick rundown on, um, you know, what we've been focused on in our discussions this week and what clients have been asking us. Yes. Um, I think, I suppose, starting at the front end of the curve and the BoE and everything like that. I think, from an economic perspective, um, our sort of pessimism around the growth outlook in the UK was very much shared across the client base. Um, I think probably the most optimistic view we got was one of kind of stagnation and the UK just sort of bumbling along. Uh, and then obviously, you know, that range to, to much more pessimistic views about uh, perhaps deeper and more prolonged recession. Um, on the inflation front, um, you know, there was lots of questions and comments about the fact that despite how, well, until this week, it felt like the market had become much more complacent around the UK's inflation outlook. But really, it did still look um, like a, a kind of outlier globally when you compare, I guess, the level of core inflation right now. Um, And a lot of the conversations that we had centered on the upside risks to inflation. And therefore, I suppose the kind of risks that the BOE needed to do more rather than less than we were expecting. So I don't think we got a huge amount of pushback on our kind of central scenario that, you know, the BOE are probably more than likely done at, at this point, we think the peak is in. But certainly the discussion and the way that it felt like the skew of risks were towards inflation kind of being higher and and stickier still than than we expect and therefore the Bank of England having to do more and really all of that for us you know the risks there center on um, I guess the labor market and and more specifically on on wage inflation Mm -hmm. Um, and I think I view that you know this kind of table mountain narrative that's sort of global central banking mantra right now if that's going to be challenged anywhere in terms of you know, rates having to be higher than we're expecting, so a bit more like an Everest kind of mountain and table mountain, rather than it being challenged kind of earlier to the downside. Then the UK was really the place where you know that would be most vulnerable to um, you know a, a sig- not significantly, but but a higher peak than than we're expecting, and I think that 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 view was really shared across our client base. Um, I guess the other thing at the front end that dominated a lot of the discussion. And perhaps that's a kind of UK versus US thing, but something that we haven't been talking about for a few months as much as we were maybe sort of six months ago was this mortgage pass-through and especially the kind of timing for when we thought that that would be, um, I guess, most relevant in the UK. Um, so, you know, when do we see this, you know, real tightening being bearing down the most on demand, which for us is probably about the middle of next year. Um, and again, this point was kind of raised frequently which is something that we were kind of defending, like I say many months ago in the UK, around the fact that, you know, only a third of households have mortgages and therefore doesn't really matter for for the transmission mechanism, um, which we've kind of I suppose defended it a lot of times on this pod, but the sort of short answer is yes, we think it does. You know, if you add in the proportion of private renters as well, who are obviously very exposed to to higher rates, then that proportion of of the market hasn't really changed. So you still have kind of fifty percent of people directly exposed to the rate in, rate increase impact. It's just taking a, a long time for that to feed through. Um, further out the curve, you know, we discussed a lot the supply outlook in the UK. We've talked about that a lot on this podcast. I think the questions that we got a lot, or the pushback that we got, was you know, supply is high everywhere. Does this really matter? And certainly, you know, given I suppose the market moves this week and everything you've been through, Jan. We, we discussed a lot the kind of relative increase in the UK versus the size of the market and what we're seeing in the US. And um, very annoyingly, that was the one chart I didn't have in my pack, which I think was the one I really needed this week. But we have a nice chart that compares, you know, just how much the net increase um, of supply really is this this year and in the years ahead in the UK versus the US and as a relative to the size of the market. And it is really quite a stark difference. So even though we're talking about a lot more supply, here in the US, there's kind of even more to come um, in the UK. Um, And so, you know, against that backdrop, it really didn't feel like there was a huge amount of demand for UK duration. Um, It felt to me like the investor base here was really thinking or almost waiting for kind of liquidity and volatility conditions to normalize before wanting to be sort of fully involved in, in the UK again, which, you know, I worry Becomes a little bit of a vicious circle because if you have everyone on the sidelines, <laughs> uh, liquidity and, and volatility conditions don't really ever normalize. Um, but yeah, from a, a trade perspective, I think that it felt like there was a real lack of demand for duration still. Um, there was no real pushback against being short guilt on a cross market basis. Um, we had lots of sympathy, sympathy for steepness, which is perhaps a little bit consensual at this time, particularly kind of Tuesdays. Um, and then also just a little bit away from rates, but, but on the dollar, um, you know, our FX uh, team have had this kind of bearish sterling view in the near term, but over the longer term in 2024, I think they see a little bit of a recovery and a bit more bullish, which is really largely centered on their dollar view and that they see, um, you know, this kind of dollar exceptionalism and this sort of soft landing narrative, maybe um, taking some of the wind out or that narrative slowing and, and taking some of the wind out the sails for the dollar, um, which would drive cable um, higher. And and I don't think that there was a huge amount of sympathy for that. Um, uh, yeah, US, our US clients seemed a lot more bullish the dollar than we were, or, or at least didn't see, I suppose, a catalyst for a, a weakening at this point. Um, so yeah, we got, got a bit of pushback on, on the sterling view, I would say. Uh, and that's it really. Uh, okay nice and short and sweet this week I think I'll be back in London next week um, and hopefully less volatile in terms of market moves Uh, but we will also of course comment on that when we get there Uh, thank you both for joining me thank you to our listeners for listening in and just a reminder if you like today's episode please don't forget to hit the like button and click subscribe so you can get the latest episodes as soon as they're available thanks see you next week